I want to begin with Clifford Green's introductory comments where he's laying out the Christology that is basic to Boniface's ethics and then take up Rowan Williams' account of Boniface's Christology and end with some readings from Boniface's own works, <clears throat> which I think both Green and Williams largely get right, but still undersell the uniqueness and power of Boniface's Ethics, Green says, this is on page 5 of the introduction, the, the Fortress Press edition I'm using. Boniface's Ethics is a work of theological ethics, and Christology plays a central role in the argument. This is foreshadowed in his Christology lectures from the summer of 1933, which were given in Berlin. These lectures present Christ as the center of history and nature, and the Church as the hidden center of the state. The paradigm of Christ the center is absolutely fundamental for the ethics. Its basic concept is similar, very similar, to Barth's model of two concentric circles, with Christ the center of both the inner circle, the church, and the outer circle, the state. This centrality of Christ is the core of Boniface's ethic, of one reality constituted by the reconciliation of the God who became human in Jesus Christ. And then on the following page, in the section entitled The Christological Center of, Eth of Ethics. Green observes this, which is startling, and, I, and I, I think not insignificant, but I'm not sure it quite gets the point. So this is what Green says. It is a striking feature of ethics that Bonifer does not use the word that was readily available and is commonly employed in this topic of theology, namely incarnation. Not, of course, that he questions in the least the true and full humanity of Jesus Christ, including the real bodily, fleshly existence of Jesus of Nazareth. That is never in doubt. The emphasis, however, is not on enfleshment per se, but on humanity and humanization. Humanity and humanization. So Green suggests that Bonifer steers around explicit reference to the Incarnation because he doesn't want to be distracted or doesn't want us to be distracted by the wonder of the event of enfleshment, God taking on flesh as an event, but rather the reality already accomplished of God's humanity. God is human and is humanizing us and divinizing us as we share in his humanity. Skipping down to the next paragraph. Accordingly, Bonifer reverses an ancient theological dictum found in formative theologians like Athanasius and Augustine, namely that God became human in order that humans might become divine. Rather, he argues, God became human so that human beings could become truly human. That is, recover their lost created humanity through the mediation of Christ. Human beings do not change their form and become divine, their true dignity is to be truly human, as Jesus, according to the Chalcedonian formula, was truly human. And here's a place where I think Green's account is, is not quite right. It misses, first of all, Bonifer and other places will say what Gregory and Athanasius and other patristic theologians said. God became, becomes human in order that we might become divine. But Bonifer's account of what it means for Christ to be human is more radical 
I think, than Green's account allows. It's not simply Chalcedonian, but in some sense, Neo-Chalcedonian, which I'll, I'll come to in a moment. So lay, laying that aside, Green aside for the moment, we'll come back to the ethics later. I want to turn to Rowan Williams' account of Bonifer's Christology. This is in Rowan Williams' Christ, the Heart of Creation. He has a chapter devoted to Dietrich Bonifer's Christology. Uh, the chapter is entitled Christ, Creation, and Community, Christology in the Shadow of Antichrist. And it starts on page 169, at least of the version that I have. And I, I have some of the same difficulties with William's account that I have with Green's account, although Williams goes into much more detail, obviously, because it's a it's not merely an introduction to the ethics, it's a it's a detailed engagement with Bonifer's Christology. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let me let me start by letting Williams frame for us what he understands to be the reason Bonifer is writing the ethics. And and here I think he and Green more or less completely agree. So stepping back from the Christology for just a moment, listen to what Williams what Williams has to say to us about why Bonifer, what Bonifer is trying to get done in the ethics, right? What, what he's trying to accomplish, like the, the, the aim he has. On page 199, under the section Christology, Ethics, and Politics, Rowan Williams explains Bonifer's reasoning this way. Bonifer believed that his unfinished work on ethics was at the heart of his theological vocation. He wrote from prison in December 1943 that he felt sometimes that all he had left to do was to finish his ethics. Clifford Green, introducing the English translation of the new critical edition of Bonifer's text, the one I just read, underlines the fact that his focus in these manuscripts is twofold. Laying foundations for a post-Hitler Germany and making sense of the transgressive politics in which he had by this time become engaged. The politics of clandestine resistance, and perhaps, given the uncertainties around Bonifer's knowledge of and involvements of this in this, the plot to kill the Fuhrer. So there is some debate about how much Bonifer knew, how deeply he was involved. There is an excellent, uh, Charles Marsh treats this, I think, quite well. There's a a video which I'm happy to I've, I've linked for someone in response to a question in the Q&A that I posted uh, last week. You can track that down if you'd like or or let me know and I'll I'll post it again for you where Marsh kind of lays out the argument that he makes in his book about what Bonifer did and didn't know and how he came to take on any any kind of involvement in the assassination attempt, the attempt to kill Hitler. But what Green says, and Williams agrees with, is that Bonifer is doing two things in the ethics. He's imagining what would Christian life look like in a Germany on the other side of the fall of Hitler, and what should Christians do under the conditions of Nazism. Like when German Christians have apostatized, as Bonifer would see it, and when even those in the confessing church have compromised deeply, what what is to be done, right? When the, the failure of the church and the state is so nearly entire and so radical that 
the Christian vocation becomes unthinkable. It's an abnormal, uh, even apocalyptic or near apocalyptic situation. What, how is the Christian to think and to act? Right. So he has this kind of, he's thinking about what must be done in this moment Christianly, this moment being the moment of Nazism, the Third Reich, and then what must be done beyond that? Like once the world has been righted in some sense, once there is a new Germany, what would a Christian morality, if that's even the right language for it, what would a Christian submission to the law of God look like? That's that's how Bonhoeffer would want it said, I think. But Green observes, and Williams reiterates it, that all of this depends upon the Christological foundation of Bonhoeffer's entire argument. There is what Ron Williams calls a Christological mandate. So in, in order to think about what do Christians do now under the conditions of, of Nazism, and what should Christians do then in the new Germany, the, the question comes back to who is Jesus? And what does Jesus require of us? So if we if we move ahead to page 212, Williams circles back on these questions of how it is that answering the question about who Jesus is and what Jesus requires of us provides us with clarity about how Christians are to live under these conditions now and in the future that we hope God brings about. The Christological imperative, this is the bottom of page 212, the Christological imperative for Bonhoeffer is that this social order has to be disrupted, this corrupt one. It's bond broken, it's obligations set aside, not in an apocalyptic denial of traditional connectedness or a revisionist account, revisionist account, I lost my place, of what is good or holy, but as a challenge to a lethally poisonous corruption of the conventional forms of obedient solidarity, the degeneration of the interwoven call of the mandates into a demand for compliance with a single unchallengeable power. In other words, again, Nazism presents Christians with an exceptionally strange situation. These are not usual circumstances. In the ethics fragments, he is still obsessively exploring the grounds and the limits of this. The texts we have are not a self-justification. In other words, it would be a mistake to read ethics as Bonhoeffer convincing himself that it's right to take part in an assassination attempt. But they are undoubtedly an effort at self-explanation. And I think I think that's right, but I think it's, it's more than self-explanation. I think it is active exploration of what possibilities... Jesus has created, even for Christians under circumstances like these, the, in, in some, some sense, the worst of times. They have an, Bonhoeffer's thoughts in ethics, have an inevitably provisional character. He is not developing an apology for tyrannicide, though he is certainly laying the groundwork for a theology of civil disobedience. And I think that's a, that's a helpful distinction, right? That it, again, would be unfair to read ethics as Bonhoeffer justifying himself or providing some kind of theological framework to make sense of tyrannicide, killing, assassinating Hitler or any other ruler. But 
he certainly is assuming that civil disobedience is in some sense required at times and that we must understand that civil disobedience Christologically. We must say Christ requires us in this situation to disobey, which of course is more or less exactly what we see in, in the book of Acts. The point, Williams continues, is the way in which he works through the basic Christological model of being for the other with an eye to an environment in which this is increasing, increasingly visibly antithetical to the norms of society. There's a good deal of unfinished business around this, to say the least. And he goes on to give some examples of what is underdeveloped, in his, in his words, underdeveloped in Bonhoeffer's ethics, which, again, is incomplete. I mean, Bonhoeffer was not able to complete it. But he, but he insists that there is still a coherent argument here, a recognizable vision of Christian civil disobedience, disobedience required because of who Jesus is and what Jesus requires of us. Bonifer's reticence in spelling out a Eucharistic theology influenced, this is the bottom of page 213, top of page 214, influenced, no doubt, by his impatience with the importance ascribed to confessional disputes on this subject between Lutheran and Reformed Protestants, might yet be filled out by an understanding of how Eucharistic practice could embody precisely the non-competitive, non-territorial territory of a visible sign of God's future. He's suggesting that here's something lacking in Bonifer that we might fill in. I'm going to say a bit more about how I think this is a, something of a misreading on, on William's part. But, toward the end of that section, William says, what Bonifer contributes, already hinted at in the Barcelona lecture, which I'll, I'll read a bit from at the end of these reflections, is the grounding of universal answerability in the holy, undefended humanity of Jesus. His willingness to be in the company of children, outcasts, people with no status or claim. It is in this that we see most, clear, most clearly the difference of God, the God revealed in Jesus, the God who makes no competitive claim, but equally requires that we make no claim, so that there is an and here he is quoting Bonifer, an empty space in us into which God can move. An empty space in us into which God can move. And I'll come back to that phrasing, which Williams quotes here. Now, again, I think much of this is right. I think certainly Williams and Clifford Green are right to say that Bonifer's ethics is really a Christology. He's working out what it means to be followers of Jesus under these circumstances. What does it mean for Jesus to be Jesus and for me to be me if this is the way the world is going? But I don't think that this phrasing is quite right. When William says it is in this, the undef holy undefended humanity of Jesus and his willingness to be in the company of children, outcasts, and people with no status or claim, that we most clearly see the difference of God. Difference from whom or difference from what? If we mean difference from the corrupt ruler, from Hitler, from Nazism, from the principalities and powers and their fallenness, then yes, of course. But not difference from us. The, what we see in Jesus' holy, undefended humanity is God. 
But not God is different from us, but God is for us and identical with us and in Jesus Christ. And that I'll come back to that phrasing a few a few times as as we're moving along here. <clears throat> so I I want now to turn to what Williams says specifically about the Christology. And I, I, if you get a chance, I encourage you to read the chapter and reread it and reread it. I think there's a lot here. There's a lot to gain from reading Williams, but hopefully. I'm being fair to him. I, I think he is being somewhat unfair is the wrong word. I, I don't think he's misrepresenting Bonhoeffer in any kind of intentional way, but I think he's missing something of the astonishment of Bonhoeffer in and Bonhoeffer's insistence in Bonhoeffer's insistence on what it means to say that God is human, what it means to say that Jesus is humanity. Page 212, Christology for Bonhoeffer is what makes politic, makes political ethics, like all areas of ethics, a discourse of transformation rather than one more version of self-creation and self-protection. So for Bonhoeffer, ethics is about transformation. Again, thinking about Germany, thinking about Europe, thinking about Christianity and Christendom. And those are, by the way, problematic, at least possibly problematic aspects of Bonhoeffer's thought. He does tend to think in identities that on this side of all of that, we, many of us at least, will question. He does tend to think about the West or Europe or Christendom or Europe or Protestantism or Germany in ways that are at least potentially problematic. And I think sometimes more than potentially problematic. We'll come to that hopefully at some point. But he does see... Jesus as the one who's present in ways that bring about transformation, not just for individuals and not just for individuals and their souls, but for peoples, for nations, for traditions, the churches, and that that transformation cannot happen so long as we are self-protective, right? So back to that phrasing Williams used a moment ago about Jesus' wholly undefended humanity. Now, that's a case in which William's own theology is coloring Bonifers, right? So Bonifer has the lines, so to speak, but Williams is coloring between the lines in his own, with his own theology. And I think you see that surfacing here again, that self, for Williams, it's self-protectiveness that keeps us from transformation. For Bonifer, I think it's less self-protectiveness, although maybe that's a feature, I think it's more stupidity, and, and I'll come to that again in due course. The ethics manuscripts are already well on their way to the theology of the prison letters with their evocation of the God who in Christ is edged out of the world. We talked about that previously. Because he has no place within the world to defend, and so is, paradoxically, capable of being everywhere at the center of the world's life. We talked some about center and boundary in Bonifer's thought, which I, which draws largely on the creation and fall lectures. So if we move back from that, just kind of moving back in the chapter, page by page, we start to see how Williams has characterized Bonifer's Christology. 
for bottom of page 210 and how that Christology matters for thinking about Christian life in these present conditions. For Bonifer, ethics, and especially the extremer reaches of political ethics, which he came to inhabit, was bound to be a discourse about transformation, the fundamental transformation of the ego in relation to Christ. For most of the time, political virtue is going to be and should be invisible, a life lived faithfully under the mandates, prosaically living out the obvious duties and obligations of the relations in which we stand even before we choose. The penultimate realm, in which the call and demand of Christ is muted, is affirmed nonetheless as real and valuable. And we'll talk some about that. We'll keep coming back to this theme of the, the relationship between the penultimate, that which matters but doesn't matter ultimately, and that which is ultimate. And Bonhoeffer's concern that radicalism divorces them in one way and compromise divorces them in another way, as, as we discussed but political virtue, then, at the bottom of page 211, William says, political virtue is reconfigured by Bonifer as the capacity fully to inhabit a world of social mutuality with the risk that accompanies it, especially in times of social crisis, and at the same time to understand this as the embodied process that is inhabiting Christ. And that it's that that leads to the sentence I read a moment ago, Christology for Bonifer is what makes political ethics a discourse of transformation. But I think, yes, yes to inhabiting Christ. But we want to say more, I think, if we want to hear Bonhoeffer rightly. And that is not just simply inhabiting Christ, but giving witness to the Christ who is present already in the world and in whom all things are already rectified and unified. So let's look now, page 209, I want to start, actually, in the middle of page 208. And again, I'm moving back through the chapter from the conclusions Williams draws about Bonhoeffer's ethics to his account of Bonhoeffer's underlying Christology. The Christological directedness of our behavior means that we must learn how to ask how we may act so as to relinquish whatever fashions, conventions, and securities prevent us from standing with another, whatever self-images protect us from seeing the reality of another, whatever generalities block our attention to the particularity of another. This is how, F and, and that, I think, is the way, what Bonhoeffer means when he, when he critiques abstraction. This is how ethical discernment embodies the death that the human ego undergoes in the presence of Christ, which is as dominant a, a note in the ethics as it is in the Christology lectures, or indeed in the cost of discipleship. My life is another, a stranger, Jesus Christ. Incidentally, I'm watching, and I hope all of you will watch, a show, Station Eleven, on HBO, and in the finale, there's this astounding scene which a mother is going to give birth, and she's asked what she what it's like to be pregnant. A man asks her, what, what's it like to be pregnant? And you can see there's a kind of conflictedness or there's a mystery that she's sensing and giving her, her countenance reflects that she knows it's a mystery. And I won't spoil it all, but she has this line in which she says that there's, there's a person living inside her and she's uncomfortable with strangers. And it's that 
I'm reminded of that line when I read now, when I read Bonhoeffer saying, my life is another, a stranger, Jesus Christ, right? And this is a theme that will show up in Rowan Williams' theology that I think is deeply resonant with Bonhoeffer's own work, and that is the otherness of Jesus is our salvation. In fact, Jesus is not a stranger to me, but the ways in which sin has marked my consciousness, marked my habits, my, my perceptions of the world, he seems strange to me. There's a, there's a passage, we may come on it today, if not next time I'll, I'll reference it, to which, which he says the, the lordship of Christ is never an imposition of foreign power. That Jesus is never dominating us as a king from a foreign land dominates a people he conquers. Jesus is not actually a stranger to us, but we meet him as a stranger because we are estranged from ourselves. That's what sin does to us. It alienates us from ourselves, and it also alienates us from God. And this is not, and this is where I'm trying to bring some adjustment to what Clifford Green said, it's not that Bonhoeffer is simply reversing the dictum, God became human in order that humans might become God. Bonhoeffer is saying, because the one, the God who's acting, is divine and human, he is God as human, therefore to become human is to become God in the way that God is God. And the same, the same logic holds here. It's not that Christ is a stranger, it's that we are alienated from ourselves. So to be drawn to him is to actually be returned to who we are. And it's in that sense, right, that there must be some empty place in me for Christ to dwell. Empty place in the ego, which is false to the the I I've constructed, or the I that has been constructed in the world. That has to be opened up, emptied out, so that the fullness of who I am in creation can can be known, can, that I can know it, and, and, and it can be known by others. So he, Williams continues, again, characterizing Bonhoeffer's thought. The key point is, is the insight that Christ has no identity that is not an embodying of unconditional solidarity with us and of acceptance of our vulnerable, guilty, and desperate condition. And he talks a bit about Calvin and Aquinas, and I think this is part of the problem with his read of Bonhoeffer. He's he's connecting Bonhoeffer too much to Calvin and Aquinas, be that as it may. Christ's unqualified sinlessness is simply the absence in Christ of anything that prevents or delays identification with the guilty and suffering. The absence of any residue of defended, isolated selfhood. He, above all others, has no territory to defend, nothing that impedes his solidarity. He has no anxiety that an immersion in solidarity will somehow destroy him because his very being is a being for, a being in solidarity. When Christ declares that he is life, he is not making an abstract metaphysical claim, but announcing that he is my life, our life. What it is for him to be alive and active is simply for him to be that which brings life to the human world in every corner. For Christ to be Christ is what makes it so that everything else is what it is. Christ is Christ, therefore Paul is Paul, as, as Paul says in Galatians. Christ is Christ, therefore trees are trees, and water is wet, and so on. And in the concrete moment, 
jumping down to the bottom of that page. And in the concrete moment, that universal ground of solidarity is what I meet when I meet the human other. I am called to stand with and for that other because Christ has already done so. And I cannot, as a member of Christ's body, see or relate to the other in any other way. I must see and respond to them as those with whom Christ has chosen to be. Above all, I cannot, any more than Christ himself, seek the consolation of a life of individual meritoriousness or innocence. And then he quotes Bonifer, Genuine guiltlessness is demonstrated precisely by entering into community with the guilt of other human beings for their sake. And I, if you're interested in reading some of what I have argued along these lines, I, I, in the second edition of my Sanctifying Interpretation book, the, the middle section of the book, the second part, is, is all about holiness. And specifically, at the heart of that, is this account of holiness as intercession and hospitality, as a, a kind of transparency and, and a readiness to be with those who are guilty. That Christ, and, and you will hear this in Bonhoeffer's own words later. I will say it's important to hear this, though, not as an imitation of Christ. We're not... Bonifer is not saying, and Williams is not saying that Bonifer is saying, that Christ has been open to everyone, and now we should be too. It's that Christ is open to everyone, and we are in Christ. Therefore, we cannot be not open to everyone without alienating ourselves from Christ and splitting our own consciousness. We will, we harm ourselves as well as hurting Christ when we fail to live in ways that are true to who he is, because he is our life. I am who I am because he is who he is. And back to page 207. If, as Bonhoeffer asserts, Christ's incarnate identity is nothing other than standing in for us, and if this establishes that human life is in its essence a standing in for one another, what is the content of this representative action? It must be more than just a way of underlining the imperative to give priority to the need of the other, and is certainly not a sentimental injunction to search for objects of benevolence. In this connection, the language of universal or unconditional responsibility might be thought to be dangerously unreal if it means that we are at any moment literally answerable for the well-being of the entire human community, summoned to solve the problems of all. But in the overall context of Bonifer's thoughts and life, thought and life, the central point to understand is surely the literal sense of the words used. We are to stand in the place where the other lives, so that we are vulnerable to what the other is vulnerable to. We are to risk what the other risks. So what Bonifer describes as the father's vocation in the family, working, providing, intervening, struggling, and suffering, should be read as a cumulative account of what this standing in, or standing for, or standing with, entails. And I think if you read life together, you get a pretty concrete description, pretty specific account of what that vocation requires, at least under relatively normal circumstances. One more section from Williams for now. On page 202, Uh, no, I'm going to go back just a bit more, actually. 
page 194. He's talking here about what Bonhoeffer is doing with a Chalcedonian definition or formulation, <clears throat> which argues that there is in the incarnation one person, two natures. One person, a hypostasis, who is God the Son, God the Word, Jesus, Son of Mary, and two natures, the divine and the human nature. And of course, if you know anything about Christian theological tradition, you know that it's deeply fraught, the, the reception of the Chalcedonian. Immediately, it was challenged and misread and appropriated in various ways, and it's continued to be a source of both unity and disunity, of clarification and confusion. And Bonhoeffer seems to affirm it, but want to say, and this is just true to his Lutheran formation, he wants to say more. But at least it gets this part right. So top of page 194, he's affirming, Williams is affirming, that Bonifer is affirming aspects of the Chalcedonian definition. Chalcedon, for Bonifer states that God is no longer other than the one who has become human. And that's a quote from the Christology lectures. The concrete existence of the one nature is expressed by the concrete existence of the other nature. Now, I'm going to keep going, but we need to slow just a bit to let the weight of those two claims hit us. And as you'll hear in a few moments when I get to the Christology lectures, the all that we and, and these are via student notes. We don't actually have Bonhoeffer's manuscript, but this these claims are astounding. Right? God is no longer other than the one who has become human. The concrete existence of the one nature is expressed by the concrete existence of the other nature. One more time. God is no longer other than the one who has become human. The concrete existence of the one nature is expressed by the concrete existence of the other nature. So, and Williams deals here some with the Lutheran debates, the Lutheran and Calvinist debates, the what, what we might call Reformed Orthodoxy or Protestant Orthodoxy. And... Williams then starts to summarize Bonhoeffer's own creative approach to that on page 195. The divine, Bono, eh, let's see, and out of this emerges the ecclesiology and the ethics that will take shape further in the fragments of Bonhoeffer's last years, above all in the steady development of the notion of being for others. And that's one word hyphenated, being for others. The divine logos confronts a persistent human project of being for self, that self-regard that self-protectiveness that Williams talks about, which cannot coexist with it. The acceptance of divine judgment on this project, which is not the same as a judgment on humanity as such, as Bonhoeffer makes plain, means that our humanity is reshaped in its true form as defined by responsibility. And so here's what I was saying a moment ago. Christ is not alien to us. He's not a stranger to us in our humanity, but he is strange to our sinfulness, to our fallenness, to our uncreatedness. And his judgment is on sin, not on our humanity. Right? It, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but you'll see in Bonhoeffer, the, the incarnation is not a humiliation for God. God does not judge humanity as such. God judges sin and judges sinners, 
who cling to their sin so that they are liberated into responsibility. Liberated into responsibility. The only way of speaking truthfully about Jesus Christ is from that mutually defining relationship in which human existence responds to the summons to self-abandonment, life for the other, which is the life that Christ embodies in history as in preaching and sacrament. Now here again, I think Williams is, well, at least I read Bonhoeffer a bit differently. And it is subtle, or it may it may seem subtle, but I think there's a lot at stake. Let me read this paragraph or these this sentence one more time. And then let's turn I'll turn from the, from Williams to Bonhoeffer himself and try to spell out a little more clearly in our last 15 minutes or so what what I think Bonhoeffer is doing that is distinct, however slightly, from what Williams says he's doing. The only way of speaking truthfully about Jesus Christ is from that mutually defining relationship in which human existence responds to the summons to self-abandonment, life for the other, which is the life that Christ embodies in history as in preaching and sacrament. Right. So he is saying something like this, at least it seems to me, that you, you can't speak about Christ in abstraction, and you can't speak about Christ from a position of observation. You have to answer the call of Jesus. And this is the best way and to read the Cost of Discipleship book. You, you have to enter into the way of Jesus and live the way of Jesus if you want to hear what it is that Jesus is saying to you and to know who he is. That there's no other way to know who he is and what he's saying without doing what he's saying. And in the doing of what he's saying, becoming one with who he is. I think Williams is right that that is what Bonhoeffer is saying. But notice, he's saying this is the life that Christ embodies, which suggests, at least on one reading, it suggests that this is a life Christ is receiving from somewhere else. Not that this is Christ's life, but it's a life that Christ has received. And that is, I think, at best, half true. At best, half true. So let's let's come to Bonhoeffer himself. And I there's there's more here than I can cover, but I want to I want to come to the ethics first, since that's the primary focus for these reflections. Page 134 in the edition I'm using. Page 134, which is the beginning of the guilt, justification, and renewal chapter. The issue, Bonhoeffer says, is the process by which Christ takes form among us. Therefore, the issue is the real, judged, and renewed human being. The real, the judged, and the renewed human being exists only in the form of Jesus Christ, and therefore in being conformed to Christ. Only the person takes on in Christ, only the person taken on in Christ, is the real human being. Only the person confronted by the cross of Christ is the judged human being. Only the person who participates in the resurrection of Christ is the renewed human being. Since God became a human being in Christ, all thinking about human beings without Christ is unfruitful abstraction. 
the counter image to the human being taken up into the form of Christ is the human being a self-creator, self-judge, and self-renewer. These people bypass their true humanity and therefore sooner or later destroy themselves. Falling away from Christ is at the same time falling away from one's own true nature. That's, that's the opening paragraph of this guilt, justification, and renewal chapter. So uh, there's a subtle difference I'm hearing here, which perhaps I'm overstating, but there is another difference that I don't think is as subtle and that I'm not overstating between what Bonifer is actually saying and what Williams is describing him to say. And that is that Christ does not simply embody a life, say the life of the Word or the life of the triune God. Christ is that life, not, not an instance of it, not a reflection of it, but the reality itself. He is the form of it, and we have to be conformed to that form. And I think there's implied, and again, perhaps I'm overreading, but I think implied in that sentence in Williams is the suggestion that discipleship Sanctification is the process of being conformed to Jesus, who is himself conformed to another form. And, and again, that might be half right in that I think there is a way in which Jesus' life is a life of yieldedness and obedience. There is a way in which Jesus' life is a life of prayer. And, and this is crucial part of Bonifer's account. See what he says about Christ in the Psalms. But I don't think it's the best way to talk about how Christ's obedience, Christ's praying, Christ's refusal to receive worship, don't call me good, there's only one who's good, and that is God. No one has seen God at any time, right? Um, the Father is greater than I. Like all of that, that language that we encounter in the Gospels, whether by the apostles about Jesus or about Jesus himself, or in the mouth of Jesus himself, what, what we're encountering there, there is, there is a way in which Jesus is deferring but we have to immediately insist that that deferral, that reflection back to the Father, is in the form itself. It's not a reflection of the form. Jesus is not the, the mirror of God. Jesus is the image of God, the face of God. I was talking with a friend just a couple days ago, and, and he, he put it this way, and I think this is exactly right. This is what Moses, this is why Moses sees the hinder parts of God, but not the face, because if he had seen the face, what he would have seen is the face of Jesus, Mary's son, Jesus of Nazareth. He would have seen the face of that Jewish carpenter that Pilate killed, and he couldn't have taken that. Right? He, he couldn't have taken that in. Like There's a, a kind of splendor, that a religious splendor, an awesome splendor, what the book of Hebrews calls the glory of Sinai, that we can take in precisely because it takes us to our limits. But the glory that is in the face of Jesus Christ is a splendor we cannot take in because it touches us at the center of our being. It's too much like us because it is us. Right? That using the image of, of Hebrews, we come to Zion, not not Sinai. We come not to a mountain that can be touched, but to what cannot be shaken. And, and what cannot be shaken is within us. It is us. It, it is our humanity. And 
this is why I, I think Jesus, when he's most frightening to people, it's when he's or most offensive for people. It's not in those moments that we would think of as glorious, right? It, it's when he's most human. So let me turn now to page 399 in the ethics. Sorry, I got a bit a field from Bonifer's own thoughts, but I, I think, or I hope at least, that it's illuminating what Bonifer was saying. Page 399, he begins to, to detail what it is that the church proclaims, and that what the church proclaims is Jesus Christ, and calling, paragraph 403 on page 399, calling everyone into community with Christ by proclaiming the commandment of Christ. So then we get a series of paragraphs in which he builds his argument. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son with the Father in eternity. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son with the Father in eternity. So notice, not the Word or the Son in eternity who becomes Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, in the language of Hebrews, with the Father in eternity. This means that nothing created can be conceived and essentially understood in its nature apart from Christ. No created thing can be understood in its nature apart from Christ, the mediator of creation. Everything has been created through Christ and toward Christ, and everything has its existence only in Christ. That's Colossians 1. And as I mentioned previously, Bonhoeffer's theology is, is deeply Pauline. The Paul of Galatians, yes. Romans, yes. But also Ephesians and Colossians. Seeking to understand God's will with creation apart from Christ is futile. Second statement. Jesus Christ, the God who became human. And notice he doesn't quite say incarnation, but he's attending to God's taking up assumption of humanity. This means that God has bodily taken on human nature in its entirety. That from now on, I'm going to be speaking on Revelation 14 in a couple of days, and that, that line shows up in Revelation 14, which Bonhoeffer preaches. From now on, divine being can be found nowhere else but in human form. Divine being can be found nowhere else but in human form. That in Jesus Christ, human beings are set free to be truly human before God. Because that is God's way of being. That is the Spirit's gift to us. Now the Christian is not something beyond the human. The quote-unquote Christian is not something beyond the human. But it wants to be in the midst of the human. Back to that talk of boundaries and center. And back to what I was saying a moment ago about the glory of Sinai versus the glory of Zion. The glory of that which takes us to our boundaries versus the glory that is at our center. What is Christian is not an end in itself, but means that human beings may and should live as human beings before God. In becoming human, God is revealed. In becoming human, God is revealed as the one who seeks to be there, not for God's own sake, but for us. To live as a human being before God, in the light of God's becoming human, can only mean to be there not for oneself, but for God and for other human beings. Right? So God is God because God is not concerned only with God, but for us. And we are ourselves only when we are concerned with God and with others and not only ourselves. Right? And this is 
precisely the argument of Philippians 2. Not, not only the Christ hymn, but what Paul argues in the verses leading up to the Christ hymn. Third statement, Jesus Christ, the crucified reconciler. This means first, that by its rejection of Jesus Christ, the entire world has become godless, and that no effort on its part can lift this curse from it. In the cross, the worldliness of the world has once and for all received its identifying mark. However, Christ's cross is the cross of the world's reconciliation with God. Therefore, precisely the godless world simultaneously stands under the identifying mark of reconciliation as freely instituted by God. The cross of reconciliation sets us free to live before God in the midst of the godless world. Sets us free to live in genuine worldliness. The proclamation of the cross of reconciliation frees us to abandon futile attempts to deify the world because it has overcome the divisions, tensions, and conflicts between the quote-unquote Christian and the quote-unquote worldly and calls us to single-minded action. And here you should hear Kierkegaard, purity of heart is to will one thing, and life and faith in the already accomplished reconciliation of the world to God. A life of genuine worldliness is possible only through the proclamation of the crucified Christ. Thus it is not possible in contradiction to the proclamation, and also not beside it in some kind of intent or autonomy of the worldly, but is precisely in, with, and under the proclamation of Christ. And of course that language is language from the Eucharist. And this is why, and I mentioned it in passing earlier, this is why William's point about Bonifer stopping short of giving us a Eucharistic theology, I don't think that's quite right. I think it, it's, it's not fully developed, perhaps, or at least it's not spelled out. But I think it's pretty clear he's arguing here that there is a sacramental relation in the Eucharist that is a testament to what is true of all things because of Christ's relation to all things. And that makes it possible, the, the worldly life possible. One way of saying that is because Christ is who he is, creation is what it is, because the Eucharist is what it is, all meals are what they are, are all meals may be what they are meant to be. And that will depend upon us being who we are. Then one more statement. Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted Lord. This means that Jesus Christ has overcome sin and death and is the living Lord to whom has been given all power in heaven and on earth. All worldly powers are subject to and bound to serve Christ, each in its own way. The proclamation of Christ is now addressed to all creatures as the liberating call to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So this, this challenge to the principalities and powers, all authorities, and this is what is meant earlier, what Green was saying, where Bonifer is like Bart and probably got it from him, if, well, leave that aside for now, that the church is at the center of the state in the way that the, church, the Christ is at the center of the church. This proclamation, the church's proclamation of the lordship of Christ over all other lords, is not subject to any earthly limitations. It is ecumenical, which means it encompasses the entire globe. And then this is the line that I, I promised was coming. The lordship of Jesus Christ is not a foreign rule, but the lordship of the creator, reconciler, and redeemer. In the lordship of the one through whom and toward whom all created being exists, indeed the one in whom all created being finds its origin, essence, and goal, in other words, Christ, the being of Jesus, Jesus being who he is, is the source of everything, it's the goal of everything, 
and it is the guide of everything. It's how we get from where we begin to where we are ending. Jesus Christ does not impose a foreign law on created being, but neither does Christ permit created being to have an autonomy apart from Christ's commandment. The commandment of Jesus Christ, the living Lord, sets created being free to fulfill its own law, that is the law inherent in it from its origin, essence, and goal in Jesus Christ. In other words, and this is a deeply Lutheran point, which has roots, of course, in the Christian tradition and Christian scripture, that the command of God is simply the truth of my being. But whatever God commands calls out of me, summons out of me my own true desire and, and fulfills me. See Luther's catechism, what, what Luther says about the Ten Commandments, or what Robert Jensen in his catechism says about the commandments, for an example of that way of thinking. Now, I want to turn, and I'm, I've gone longer than I intended to go with this, but if you stayed with me this long, let me go ahead and say, there's a striking omission here in that he doesn't say anything in this in the ethics about Christ the returning one. So he, he talks about Christ the one who's in eternity with God. He talks about Christ becoming human. He talks about God becoming human in Christ. He talks about the Christ crucified. He talks about Christ risen and exalted. But he doesn't talk about Christ coming. And it's not because he has no theology for it. In the Finkenwalde lectures, he does talk about that specifically. He, he gives a sermon on Luke 21, 25 to 26, in which he says this. Just These are rough notes. In the preaching of Christ, is the preaching of Christ returned so certain? The parable of the tree, consider the parable of the fig tree. Did Jesus' own contemporaries not wait in vain? In other words, wasn't there a delay of the parousia? Wasn't there a, a way in which those first Christians were disappointed that Jesus did not return? He says, well, the tempter says Christ is not coming. But one cannot believe in the crucified and the resurrected without also believing in the one who is to return. The message of that return is the salt of the sermon. The message of that return is the salt of the sermon. Gives the strength to suffer. We cannot deviate from the word, Jesus wants this message to be proclaimed. And then he goes on to say what we must not do. We, we must not try to answer when. That's a mistake. We need to cultivate a, a being on guard and an openness toward God through the Advent-like disposition of prayer. Thy kingdom come. So I, I don't quite know what to make of it. Why... Bonhoeffer stopped short of that in the ethics. But I, I, I do think it's a significant omission. And perhaps the argument can be made that because it's these are excerpts, or not excerpts, but kind of unfinished lines, he would have gotten around to it eventually, perhaps. perhaps. And I, I don't know, it would take someone who knows his work better than I do to know how best to answer it. But I, I do think it's important to observe. So I want to do one more thing before I end, and that is turn to some of Bonhoeffer's earlier comments on Christology. One, the lecture from Barcelona when, when Bonhoeffer was serving there as a curate, and then the Christology lectures in Berlin. So 1928, 
he gives the the talk on Christ, Jesus Christ and the essence of Christianity. And I'm reading this from the Testament to Freedom, which is a, a kind of anthology, which was published by Harper and let's see what year was this? Par published by Harper One. For some reason I don't see a date. 1995. So Testament to Freedom. This is from 1928, December 11th, 1928. I'm not going to read, obviously, not going to read the entire lecture, but listen to what a still quite young Dietrich Bonhoeffer will say about Christ. Christ has become a matter of the church, or rather of the churchiness of a group. I love that distinction, right? That we're not really so much a church, we're just a churchy group. Not a matter of life. Religion plays for the psyche of the 19th and 20th centuries the role of the so-called Sunday room, Sunday room, into which one gladly withdraws for a couple of hours, but only to get back to one's place of work immediately afterwards. However, one thing is clear. We understand Christ only if we commit ourselves to him in a stark either-or, and that's, of course, Kierkegaard again. He did not go to the cross to ornament and embellish our life. If we wish to have him, then he demands the right to say something decisive about our entire life. And you can see how this is anticipating discipleship, the book Discipleship, how this is anticipating ethics as well. I can doubtless live with, this is on down in the lecture, I can doubtless live with or without Jesus as a religious genius, as an ethicist, as a gentleman, just after all, as I can also live without Plato and Kant. But all that has only relative meaning. Should, however, there be something in Christ that claims my life entirely with full seriousness such that it is God who speaks, and if the word of God once became, presence on, once became present only in Christ, then Christ has not only relative but absolute urgent significance for me. And later, ethics and religion lie in the direction of human beings toward God. Christ, however, speaks alone, entirely alone, of the direction of God to people, not of the human way to God, but of the way of God to human beings. Therefore, it is like, likewise completely perverse to seek a new morality in Christianity. So look at Ethics, page 47 and page 299, where he, he says outright, like, this is not the pursuit of a new morality. We're not looking for a Christian-based morality for all. We're looking for the command of Jesus. God comes, bottom of that page, God comes to people who have nothing but room for God. And this hollow space, this emptiness in people, is called in Christian speech, faith. This means that in Jesus of Nazareth, the revealer, God inclines to the sinner. Jesus seeks the companionship of the sinner, goes after him or her in boundless love. He wants to be where a human person is no longer anything. And this, to me, sounds like not only like Kierkegaard, but like Meister Eckhart. The meaning of the life of Jesus is the demonstration of this divine will for sinners, for those who are unworthy. Where Jesus is, there is the love of God. And so we might say this, and, and here, you know, Bonhoeffer, of course, is, is in a tradition, a, a Lutheran tradition, yes, an Eckhartian tradition, perhaps, a Kierkegaardian tradition. But it is that Jesus is drawn to the sinner, not repelled by sin, but drawn to the sinner. And he, that therefore Jesus is the love of God, acting to save the sinner from the sin. 
and there's so much here that I want to share, but for this, for the sake of time, he, he makes toward the bottom of the, of that page, he makes a distinction between Christianity and Christ. Christianity, uh, where should I start? The answer to another pressing question follows from this interpretation of the cross of Christ. What are we to think of other religions? Are they as nothing compared to Christianity? We answer that the Christian religion as religion is not of God. The Christian religion as religion is not of God. It is rather another example of a human way to God. Though, of course, Buddhism and others too, like Buddhism and others too, although, they, of course, they are of a different nature. Christ is not the bringer of a new religion, but rather the one who brings God. Christ is not the bringer of a new religion, but rather the one who brings God. Therefore, as an impossible way from the human to God, the Christian religion stands with other religions. Christians can never pride themselves on their Christianity. The gift of Christ is not the Christian religion, but the grace and love of God, which culminates in the cross. So that that's the bonifer of the Barcelona lecture that Williams mentions. And you can hear the kind of searing demand, Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is our salvation, not Christianity, much less Christendom. Jesus is our, our hope, because in him God is acting. But what we get when we get to the Christology lectures is a, a ground for that kind of demand. And I, I think, gosh, I... It, it might be worth, and I, I think I will just just because I'm I'm sure I'm testing your patience at this point. I I think I'll hold, I'll just do a separate episode specifically on the Christology lectures, but let me let me tease them this way to say that if you hear the bonifer of cost of discipleship, the bonifer of that lecture I just read from Barcelona, and you hear him talking in such fierce, searing terms about the demand of Jesus, but you don't, but you miss the deep grounding, the theological form that underlies and upholds it. You will, you will hear it as, as a kind of manichaeism, as a, as a kind of moralism. And what Bonifer is off are even a, a kind of anti-moralism moralism or anti-morality moralism. But that's false to what Bonifer is doing. The, the, the demand of Jesus Christ is urgent because it is the demand of my own being. That, there, that I cannot be who I am without being true to who Jesus is. And he has been true to me in being true to who he is. And so there, there is urgency here, but it's not the urgency of what Bonifer calls the Pharisee. And of course, yes, Lots of misrepresentation of, of Phariseeism. Bonifer, to his credit, tries to push past some of those caricatures. But still, we need to we need to use that language carefully, lightly, and always in quotes. But this is, you know, Bonifer is not a fire and brimstone preacher. He's not a Billy Sunday or a Billy Graham. He's insisting that we attend to the urgency of the matter that is our reality, that is the condition of our of our existence. And the Christology lectures, which for me are Bonifer at his absolute best, 
if also at his most maddening. So with that teaser, let's stop for now.